Hello and welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 126, and we're going to talk about 10 weird tips to enhance your van life. <laughs> yeah, it was time for one of those episodes. We're also going to talk about alternators, how they work, how you know when they're not working, and how to fix them, a tale from the road involving a very steep hill, and a product review of the Chrysler Pacifica. Can it be a van life van? Hello, everyone. Welcome back. I am sitting here along the banks of the Illinois River in LaSalle County, Illinois. Uh, it turns out there are many Illinois rivers in the U.S., and many of them have no relationship to Illinois, and it's it's very confusing. But I'm here in the Tiki Bago, in the rain, and you may hear noises during this podcast, such as eagles flying by or some weird things turning on in this Tiki Bago thing that I haven't figured out yet, or the gentle rain hitting the roof, which is one of our favorite sounds, as we all know. So I'm not apologizing for the ambient sound this time. I'm just letting you know that it's going to be here because I'm enjoying it. This time, I thought we would just take a departure from things and do a quick top 10 weird tips list. Again, I don't know why they're the top, just because they're what came to mind when I made the list, apparently. So tip number one. You can collect rainwater. It's true, depending on many, many things. First off, we're always struggling to find water. That's one of the problems of living in a van is that you can only carry a limited amount of water with you. But folks, there's nothing wrong with collecting rainwater. If you happen to be in a thunderstorm, well, depending on how your van's parked, there is going to be one place where most of the rain is going to drain off your van. And with a little bit of ingenuity, you can collect that water. Now, everyone's van's different. Some people have awnings. There's all kinds of different ways to do this. But consider... If you need to do laundry or do the dishes or something like that, rainwater is perfect for that. It's completely fine. And heck, you might as well collect it and save yourself a few gallons. Note that this is actually illegal in some Western states, but those are the states that you're unlikely to ever have the opportunity to collect rainwater anyway. Number two, a completely opposite thing. There is a thing called sun laundry. And that's because I think I just made this up, but this does actually work and I've done it. You can do laundry without water to a certain extent, and it involves simply hanging your laundry in the sun. And why this works is that moisture in your clothing holds odors. And if you're basically just trying to make your clothes fresher, hanging them out in the sun can do that. One of the best examples of this is with socks. Just hang your socks out for a day and yeah, you can get a day's more wear out of them. Now, of course, our standards living in vans about laundry are probably different than they are when you're living at home. But hey, this is just one tip that can help you out and maybe save even a little bit more water. Tip number three. This is something I do all the time. I've done this ever since I was a kid. And that is to cook without using any pans. You just cook in the can. Backpackers know this trick. Hobos know this trick. People who've cooked open, open fires know this trick. It's as simple as you take the cover off of whatever you're trying to cook, soup, chili, SpaghettiOs, whatever, 
stir it up real good, put it on the burner, and you just let it sit there until it gets warm to hot, but not boiling. See, the thing is, if it's in a can, it's already cooked. It is impossible to have anything raw in a can because the canning process actually cooks things. So all you're trying to do is warm it up to eat it. So you take your can of SpaghettiOs, you stir it up, and you have to stir it up because you want the consistency to be even throughout the can. And then you warm it up until it just starts to bubble. Then you stir it up again and you're ready to eat it. Now there's an obvious part here I've left out and that is the can is hot. <laughs> so you're gonna need a glove. But if you do this, and I in fact just did it this morning with a can of soup in the Tiki Bago, you don't have any dishes to do. You just have the can that you are going to have anyway. The most you're going to have to do for dishes is a spoon. Number four. On a similar note, I am on a never-ending quest to make decent toast while in a van, and I've used many different devices, and lately I'm just using the one that is the simplest, which is I kind of just hold the toast over the flame for a little while. <laughs> I mean... It's, it's silly, but honestly, it works pretty well if, if you can take your, your bagel or your English muffin or your toast or whatever it is and stick it on a fork and just wave it over the flame a bit. Yeah, you'll, you'll end up with toast. It's, it's not the same, but it's simple. It's minimalist, and uh, it's actually been getting me by on my toast-free mornings, so I appreciate it. Number five. This is terrible advice I'm going to give you. It's illegal. There may be other problems. Actually, I'm not giving you this as advice. I'm just making you aware of it in case you are in an emergency situation or something like that. But if your vehicle uses diesel, there is a kind of diesel that you can get that is much less expensive and is sometimes available in places where normal diesel isn't. And it is called off-road diesel. You will find this at some gas stations in agricultural areas where they'll have two diesel pumps and one is labeled for off-road use only. The deal is that for tractors that use diesel, you're allowed to use this diesel in them and there aren't any taxes on it, or at least not the same taxes. Because after all, your tractor's not using the roads and that's what the taxes go to. However, this diesel is dyed, so it is detectable. And if you fill up your van with this diesel and get pulled over and somebody tests the diesel and finds that dye in it, you can face a very hefty fine. So don't do this. And also that diesel may not be as well refined as what your engine requires. It may be a higher sulfur count or something like that. So terrible advice, don't do this but it doesn't hurt to be aware that maybe you'll be in a situation where you're out of diesel and the station that you finally crawl into only has off-road diesel. I mean, if I were in that situation, I would probably chance getting a couple of gallons to get me to the next station. Number six, one of my favorite tips, and I've said this many times, so I'm gonna say it again. If you want to use your cassette toilet in the winter, you totally, absolutely can. You just fill the fresh water compartment with washer fluid. Windshield washer fluid is made of methyl alcohol, a little bit of dye and water, and the whole point of it is that it doesn't freeze. But it makes a perfectly decent flushing agent. There's nothing wrong with using this to flush your toilet, and you can use your toilet all winter long. 
It's, I mean, if you have a compositing toilet, obviously you don't have this problem, except maybe your pee bottle will freeze. This will even fix that problem because the wastewater will then also have a little bit of antifreeze in it. I've done this for years, it works great, and it's a lot less expensive than using RV antifreeze. So that's just a tip I really like, and I will probably add it to every list of tips I have going forth in the future. Number seven, very odd tip here. Wind chimes can work as a sort of alarm. Now, I am a very audio-centered person. I kind of drive my wife crazy because my office, if I have an office, is always set up to sound like Star Trek. Every little thing's doing notifications and bings and beeps, and I know there are people that hate that. But if you're somebody like me that actually likes all that audio feedback, having wind chimes hanging inside your van can actually give you feedback as to what's going on. And I find this particularly useful when sleeping. Now the Tiki Bago had some wind chimes in a drawer and they're those little metal wind chimes. These happen to have a crab at the top of them. And I took them out of the drawer and just to get them out of the way, hung them on a hook on the wall. I've used this to know things about the state of the Tiki Bago. For example, if somebody gets in, that rocks the Tiki Bago enough that I hear those chimes and I know, oh, someone came in. Now, in the middle of the night, if I'm woken up by something, if I hear the wind chimes, then I know something's going on with the Tiki Bago. Now, it could be just wind. But if somebody were messing with me or trying to open a door or whatever, those bells would be going off. I would then know it wasn't my imagination or some kind of a jerk I had in my sleep or something like that. Very strange tip, but that's what this list is about. And it's something that might work for maybe 5% of you, but I kind of like it. Number eight, this is kind of a, a mental health tip. Uh, it's also useful if you're hungry. <laughs> Volunteering can cure many ills. If you're ever feeling unsure about your van life or unsure about yourself, or you just don't know what to do next, consider volunteering. The worst thing that can happen is that you'll help somebody else. And it doesn't have to be a long-term thing. It can be a one-day thing. There are many organizations that you can just go to, namely food banks, and say, hey, I've got a day with nothing to do. Is there something I can do to help out? And they'll have you sort food or whatever. Or you can join a national organization that has planned things. But the point is that if you volunteer, you're probably going to be fed, so you've got that going for you. You'll have access to restrooms and all that kind of stuff, which can be useful from time to time. But I think the most important part is that you're going to get out of your head for a while. You're not going to be doing what's best for you. You're not going to be planning for you. You're going to be able to shift that to others. And where we're so individualistic and self-reliant in vans, I think volunteering can really, really help with perspective and a re setting of priorities. So I can't recommend that enough. I still volunteer with Team Rubicon. That's what I do for this regard. In fact, I'm, I'm flying to Wilmington, North Carolina this weekend to do a training. And every time I do that, I, I come back with a total change of perspective. Number nine, don't throw away all your cardboard. I think it's super handy to have a, say, six foot by four foot piece of cardboard in the van with you or something like that. They don't take up that much space. You can put them under your rug. If you have a, if let's say you have a hard floor and you have a rug over it, you can put the cardboard under that and it will help absorb moisture and add a little bit of cushioning. Or you can put it under your mattress, which can be useful because it'll absorb moisture there too. Just make sure you air it out 
once in a while. But the point of saving the cardboard is that it's super useful for things such as having to crawl under your van for whatever reason, or if you happen to accidentally break a window, you have cardboard to cover the window up with, or if you need to make an emergency sign, or if you need something to make a fire with, or heck, if you need to make a box, you can make a box out of a piece of cardboard. Cardboard is everywhere. We have more cardboard in the world than we ever had before. Recycling cardboard is of questionable value, but reusing cardboard is of definite value. So the next time you come across a big piece of cardboard, consider putting it in your van somewhere. It doesn't take up any space. It doesn't take up any weight, and it could be a really nice thing to have. And number 10, another strange tip that I learned way back in my days of working on tractors all the time, although those days seem to have come back for me, hand cream will help keep your hands clean. If you know you're going to do some really nasty work, like work on an engine or dig a lot or something like that, applying a whole bunch of hand cream to your hands, I mean, just get them as, as greasy as you can. Well, basically, you're filling up all the space in your hands that can hold the dirt, and they don't get as dirty. And that hand cream helps you clean your hands off afterwards. And another weird thing about hand cream, this is a problem I have all the time, is that I buy a hat, and I sweat a lot. I have a hyperidosis of the forehead. I, my forehead sweats like crazy. And the bill of my hat absorbs the sweat, and then I end up with these dark marks that are permanent in the hat hand cream fixes that. No, seriously, the oil in the hand cream, if I apply it all over the hat, the oil evens out the color. <laughs> and I have a nice soft hat. No, it actually doesn't make the hat any softer. It might make it smell a little bit like balsam or aloe or whatever. But uh, yeah, it's another weird little tip for hand cream. And a third last tip for hand cream. It can serve as an emergency lubricant for oh so many things. We'll just leave that right there. Tech Talk. We're going to talk about alternators. All right. If you look under your hood, you're going to find an alternator. It's either on the top or the bottom or the side, depending on how your engine is. But it's a cylindrical device that has a metal fan that runs off of a belt. It's a little tiny fan. And every internal combustion engine has one of these. I promise you there's one under there. What this thing does is it produces AC power. That's why it's called an alternator. It alternates current, but that's rectified to direct current or DC. And a normal alternator will output between say 13.8 volts and 15 volts, depending on a wide variety of factors. So we call them 12 volts, but that's an nominal 12 volts. It's actually a range. What the thing does is it charges your battery and provides power to your engine. It basically is kind of like the heart of your electrical system in your vehicle. Now, these things fail all the time. Sometimes they get too hot. Sometimes they just wear out. But they are a very, very common thing to have fail on an engine, usually near 100,000 miles or so, depending on the engine and, and many, many things. When the alternator dies, you may not know right away I did actually hear one go in my wife's 2006 Toyota Camry that she used to have. We were driving along and I heard a tink 
and then the engine sounded different. Everything drove the same, it's just it sounded different. And it was about a week later I realized that the alternator had died. And I determined that by the best possible test, which is if you take a voltage meter and you put it on the starter battery. Now in vans that might be under the floor, it might be under the hood, it depends on the type of van. And then you watch the voltage step on the gas and if the voltage doesn't change then you know you have a bad alternator now smart alternators might mess with this a bit so it's best to do this under load which is you put on your headlights you put on your air conditioner turn everything on and then do the test that will be the safest most effective way to do this but if that doesn't move it's very likely that there's something wrong with your alternator now, what will happen over time is that if your alternator's dead, your battery will die because the battery will have to be used to power the engine components like the computers and the fans and the headlights and the wipers and all that kind of stuff. And without the alternator there to recharge it, over time it will just die. And then you're stuck. <laughs> You can replace it by yourself if it does go bad. It's not that technical, but it can be a little tricky because often they're in places that are hard to reach and you have to tension the belts properly and that can be tricky. Often there's an idler pulley that you have to move or some other tensioner. And I recommend you watch a lot of YouTube videos about doing this before you attempt it on your vehicle. But yes, it is something that you can do with just a few wrenches and not a lot of technical know-how. But other things to check to maybe keep your alternator in good shape is to make sure it's clean. You don't want any oil dripping on it or mud or anything like that. And make sure the belts are in good condition. The belts may be an actual point of failure rather than your alternator. For example, if you hear squealing from your engine, and it's not the air conditioning compressor, which is the most common cause of that squealing sound, it might be your alternator and changing the belt might be all you need. It might be just slipping. Or if it's a relatively new belt, it might just need to be retentioned. So understand how all that works. You can jumpstart an engine with a bad alternator. It will start right up and then be fine until you disconnect those jumper cables and then you'll find out it'll die fairly quickly because that little bit of juice you gave that battery just isn't going to last. Now, if you're in an emergency situation and you can get someone to jumpstart you, you can use your leisure batteries, the ones in the back of the van, to actually power your engine. You can run jumper cables from them to the starter battery, or you can figure out some other way to get power up there. You can even swap the batteries out if you have to. That will keep your engine running until your leisure batteries are depleted. So that can get you out of a tough situation, but it's really not a good idea to do this for very long. You want to then turn off everything in the vehicle you can and drive immediately to somewhere where you can get that alternator replaced because you're going to damage your batteries and you are running the risk of stalling somewhere and being stuck in maybe a dangerous situation. If you are in a situation where you have a van that has kind of a little tiny alternator, you're probably going to notice that it dies a lot. <laughs> you're you're going to wear it out. You can replace that with a higher output alternator. Almost all vans have a high output alternator option and it should fit right in. Or in some cases, you can actually add a second alternator. For example, you could have an alternator that's only job was to charge the batteries in the back. Or you could have a 24-volt alternator if you wanted a 24-volt system in the back. That's an option you have, 
too. One thing you should definitely know about your alternator is whether it is a smart alternator or not. All a smart alternator is is an alternator that will turn itself off when the battery is fully charged, thus saving you gas mileage. This can cause a problem with some kind of chargers that we use for the rear batteries, but as long as you know what you're doing, it's fine. A DC to DC or battery battery charger will work in all cases. They just tend to be a little bit more expensive. So that's about all you need to know about alternators. Tales from the road. So I had a fight with my girlfriend at the time. I think we're talking about 1986 here. So quite a while ago. And um, one of the things I used to do to, you know, kind of calm down was to just go for a drive. And at the time I was living in West Virginia, Salem, West Virginia, which is confusing because I grew up in Salem, Massachusetts. Say West Virginia, if you've ever been there, is not the flattest place in the world. In fact, it is the least flat place in the entire United States. Uh, it's, it's so not flat that the idea of having a soccer field is challenging because you can't find that much flat land. And there was one hill in Salem, West Virginia, I think it was called West Virginia Street, that was just incredibly steep. Like, it was one of these hills that's so steep that you're like, how did they even pave that? How did they keep the paving equipment on the hill and not have it just fall down? And well, I thought, hey, I'm mad. I'm going to drive up that hill in my 1980 Datsun 510, which was a great car. And, uh, oh, did I mention that it was about 20 degrees out and that the road was covered with ice? So I had not been driving all that long. <laughs> I mean, I had, I guess I, I'd been driving for about three years and I probably had a little bit too much confidence. Uh, in fact, I know I did because my rear wheel drive four cylinder, little tiny Datsun 510 made it about three quarters of the way up that icy hill and then started to go backwards and I realized I was about to lose control and slide all the way back down the hill so I was able to maneuver a bit to get over to the side so I wouldn't hit any of the cars parked on this hill and I ended up getting the rear bumper hooked up on somebody's stone wall but I'd stopped I'm like good I didn't damage anything and I thought well okay that's great now what so I called the tow company in town. There was only one. I think it was Todd, actually. I think it was Todd's towing at the Exxon station at the intersection of, God, if I remember this, Routes 23 and Route 50, I think. Or it's been a long time, but sometimes memories stick there. Anyway, Todd comes, and he looks at the car, and he looks at me, and he doesn't say it, but the words, wow, that was stupid, kind of are broadcast from his forehead to me. And who am I to disagree? <laughs> but doesn't matter. There's a job to be done here. And Todd does this thing that amazes me to this day. He pulls his tow truck up the hill. First off, he got up this icy hill in his tow truck. Now, I think he had chains on the back wheels, which helped, but he got way up the hill farther than I did, but he still couldn't get to the top. He started skidding and then stopped and then hooked his tow hook up to the front of my car and winched me out, but just enough to get me off the wall. He basically pulled the car forward enough so that it was on its own four wheels 
but he didn't pull it all the way up to the tow truck. It was still at an angle and not even with the road. And I thought, hmm, how is he going to fix this? Because I know he can't pull forward, and there really isn't that much space for him to tow the car more. So how are we going to solve this problem? Well, just like in a comic book, he carefully walked down the hill and put his shoulder into the quarter panel of the car, the right rear, and just shoved the car across the road like it weighed about 10 pounds. He knew that the road was slippery enough that he could just push the car and have it swing like a pendulum until it needed to be exactly in the road where it was. And I was blown away and I was like, oh, thank you, Todd. That's awesome. And then he did something that I didn't expect. He unhooked the car <laughs> and he said, okay, go ahead. And I'm thinking, but how? <laughs> I can't go up the hill. I'm three quarters of the way up this hill, now in the middle of this icy street, what am I supposed to do? And I was like, uh, okay, what do I do now? And he said, oh, just back down the hill. And Okay, so despite me showing him how poor my judgment was, he thought that was the best course of action rather than to kind of winch me down the hill or something like that. And I did. I, I backed down the hill somehow i managed to do what i couldn't do before and i made it all the way down to the hill and a hundred dollars poorer i was out of this situation and <laughs> at the bottom of the hill i ran into the police person may have been a sheriff i actually don't remember if salem had its own police and he said I was just watching to see if I needed to give you a ticket or not, but since there wasn't any damage to the wall, I think you're okay. But um, don't do that again. And I thought, you're damn right. And I just remembered the worst part. I didn't have a credit card at the time, and I had to ask my girlfriend to borrow hers. <laughs> Product review. So when I was in Portland, Oregon, a couple weeks ago, I took a whole bunch of people to the waterfalls up the Columbia River Gorge, and then we got on the Stern Wheeler and had a dinner, and it was a nice, nice day, very crowded. I talked about it a couple podcasts ago. But one of the challenges of this trip is that we couldn't rent a bus because buses aren't allowed, basically. You can only have very small buses, and the cost of a very small bus didn't work out favorably for the size of the group I had. I had 25 people, I could only get a 21-passenger bus, and it cost as much as a 50-passenger bus, then I would have had to divide the cost by 21, etc. So what we did instead was we rented minivans. And that wasn't the cheapest thing in the world, but it worked. I got some volunteer drivers and we were able to go out and see everything and it was all completely fine. But the whole time, everybody's looking at the falls and seeing all these amazing things. I'm driving this Chrysler Pacifica thinking, hmm, how would this be for van life? And so I thought I would tell you. Now, the Chrysler Pacifica has basically replaced the caravan and, you know, the, the you know, traditional Chrysler minivans that we had for everywhere. The Grand Caravans and all those, those are no longer made. The Pacifica is the van they make now. And it is one of the biggest minivans ever made, actually. But I do not think this would be a good vehicle for a total conversion. 
it has too much stuff in it this thing is tricked out with all kinds of electronics and fancy things and while those are nice for driving i really enjoy driving this thing they're all stuff that's going to cause problems if you start cutting into things the electric doors, the electric hatch, the airbags that run all across the back, the fancy seats, all this stuff is going to be in your way if you're trying to do a van build. However, I do think these vans would be absolutely awesome as no-build vans. First off, they're huge. Behind the driver's seat, there's more than enough space for, uh, maybe not a queen bed, but certainly enough space for two full-size people to sleep comfortably. And then you've got the stow-and-go seat areas that with a little bit of work, you could remove some of the seats and have these massive storage compartments in the floor that would hold a toilet or cooking gear or whatever. And if you could do the kind of trip where you're going to like cook out the back hatch, this thing would be awesome so i really did like the van i absolutely loved it they're not inexpensive so this is kind of not for everybody but if you find yourself in possession of a chrysler pacifica you can make a really nice no build out of it and if you're new to that term that means basically you don't change anything in the vehicle and yet you still turn it into a camper in fact, I have this fantasy about making a backpack camper build, which is a backpack that you can bring on a plane, fly somewhere, rent one of these vans, and then live out of it comfortably just on the things you brought with you in the backpack. I totally think it's doable. I really want to do it as a project and make a video about it, but we'll see. So anyway, Chrysler Pacifica, great van, great for a no-build, not a great van if you want to do a lot of custom work. Look more towards a cargo van for that. A place to visit. So it doesn't matter where you go, almost everywhere in the U.S. has this place called Gravity Hill. And this is a magical place where your car will all by itself roll up hill. And how is that even possible? Well, some say that at the top of the hill, there is a big, huge collection of magnetite or lodestone, but basically a big magnet that pulls your van up the hill. Other people say it's the rotation of the earth, and this hill is lined up just perfectly to take advantage of that rotation and propel your car up this hill. And still others say that there are the spirits of dead children from that huge school bus crash in the 50s and they're pushing your car up the hill. And what's even creepier is if you go and you spread talcum powder on the back of your vehicle, you can see their handprints. Dun -dun! Well, okay. Well, actually, everything I just said was true because there are people that say all that stuff. And if you look and just Google Gravity Hill and you'll find them everywhere. And should you visit one of these? And I would say, yeah, go ahead and visit. Experience this phenomenon. It's an optical illusion where the surroundings make it look like you're going uphill, but you're really going downhill because folks gravity works and you can prove this to yourself by simply dumping out a bottle of water next to your van and you'll see that the water also goes in the same direction that your van goes and i don't think there are ghosts of little kids pushing the water but maybe there's someone else who will say that 
it's an interesting optical illusion and i appreciate it for that i have been on these gravity hills i've looked at them the effect is always pretty subtle so usually the folks who really believe this had it sold to them really hard ahead of time and they went in prime to believe that this was actually a thing i don't have a specific one for you to go to because they're literally all over the place all around the world but if you want to do something a little different and maybe not drive all that far to do it go ahead and type gravity hill and learn about this interesting bit of phenomena resource recommendation so you know what a screw is right but do you know what a sex screw is i i had just learned this term <laughs> a sex screw i've actually used these i didn't know that they were called this but if you ever want to know about screws and the nine hundred thousand different kinds of screws there are i have a resource for you and it is called homestratosphere.com i i don't know why but um yeah homestratosphere.com and they have an article called 36 types of screws and screw heads ultimate chart and guide and it's just a super handy read it, it'll take you maybe 10 minutes to get through it but you will learn basic terminology that will help you understand why screws are shaped the way they are and which ones you should use for certain things for example what is the difference between a lag bolt and a carriage bolt well a carriage bolt is called that because it's meant to carry weight and you put a nut on the end of it that's what makes it a bolt but because english is terrible at being consistent we also have lag bolts which are also meant to carry weight but you don't use nuts with them <laughs> i you got to read it. it. Some of the stuff you just can't figure out by looking at the words, but it's, it's interesting because there's a whole bunch of these that I didn't know they had specific names. Like an elevator bolt is different than a carriage bolt, although it looks very similar. A shoulder bolt is something you find a lot with Ikea stuff. And then yes, folks, there is the sex bolt, which is, <laughs> well, it, um, it's where the screw and the bolt both look like screws that's the best way i can describe it but heck you can see it for yourself at this site so the url is homestratosphere.com slash types hyphen of hyphen screws and i'll have a link in the show notes of course well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 126. A special shout out to those of you in Ukraine who have been listening. If there's anything I can do for you personally, please get a hold of me at Jeff at Built to Go. That's two T's, not three, not one. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember this appropriate quote from comedian Dave Barry. Rainstorms will travel thousands of miles against prevailing winds for the opportunity to rain on a tent. <laughs>